Welcome to The Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My guest today is Bill Ritter, Jr., director of the Center for the New Energy Economy at Colorado State University. Prior to that, he served as governor of Colorado from 2007 to 2011. During his term, Governor Ritter established Colorado as a national and international leader in renewable energy by building a new energy economy that's creating thousands of new jobs and establishing hundreds of new companies. He also enacted an aggressive business development and job creation agenda focused on knowledge-based industries of the future like energy, aerospace, biosciences, and information technology. Governor Ritter is also the author of Powering Forward, what everyone should know about America's energy revolution. Governor Ritter, welcome to the show. Thank you. I appreciate being on the show, Mike. So I'd like to start with just a little bit of background. Uh, How long have you been interested in renewable energy and what was it that got you interested in the first place? It was a bit of an odd evolution. I uh, was a prosecutor when I got out of law school. I was a uh, Catholic missionary living in Zambia for a few years. I came back and and soon after I got back, I actually became the elected DA in Denver uh, by appointment and then ran for election. So I was a prosecutor for most of my adult professional life. And then I decided to run for governor after I I was term limited as a prosecutor and I ran for governor and I didn't really know much about energy or environmental issues, uh, only what you might read in you know different newspapers or magazines around the country and so i was looking at issues where coloradans would view things um in a campaign mode as opportunities and even in some respects also as addressing risks and this issue about developing clean energy in a state like colorado seemed like a great economic opportunity for us and and it's why we couched it even then in terms of a new energy economy That was 2005, 2006. And in our mind, this was a place of great opportunity for the people of Colorado and for our, you know, economic vitality. And and it was that that got me first interested in it. And over time, as I took a deeper dive into looking at environmental issues, and particularly one of those environmental issues, climate change uh, and warming, I decided that these things, the opportunity and the risks go hand in hand. So that was really the evolution of it. I I um, then focused on that both as a candidate, but then making good on the promises I made as a candidate. I um, governed uh, with uh, the new energy economy in mind and at the forefront of my mind for the whole time I was governor. So I guess it's an important issue to you then, because in a way you see this as, well, the future. Yeah, I do. And, you know, I think. Um, we have to acknowledge that fossil fuels and particularly coal fire generation has been such an important part of uh, the America's American past. Um, coal fire generation helped us build a manufacturing economy. Our manufacturing economy in turn helped create a middle class in America. And there's just so much about coal fire generation where in a sense we owe a lot, you know, to the men and women who uh, lived in coal communities, who mined coal, who ran coal-fired generating plants. But if we're thinking about what the energy of the future looks like, it's not going to be like the past. And so that was very much 
a part of our thinking and my thinking as governor and my team's thinking is that we have to really think about the future and we have to plan for this transition in a meaningful way so that we can grow the economy, we can um, ensure that we're doing things in an environmentally sound way, but also that we're protecting people in an equitable fashion, people who are ratepayers, and even people who are living in coal communities and have to think as well about that transition from a more personal point of view. I'd like to thank our first sponsor today, ZipRecruiter. You know, I've said it before, good help is hard to find, and, and that's true no matter who you are. If you're looking for, I don't know, an office manager, a web developer, or I guess even if you're an insane North Korean dictator trying to find good people for your ICBM program. And that's where ZipRecruiter comes in. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to 100 plus job sites with just one click. Then their powerful technology efficiently matches the right people to your job better than anyone else. And that's why ZipRecruiter is different because unlike those other job sites, they don't depend on candidates finding you. ZipRecruiter finds them. In fact, over 80% of jobs posted on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate in just 24 hours. And there's no juggling a whole bunch of emails or calls to your office. All you have to do is go to their easy-to-use dashboard where you screen, rate, and manage candidates all in one place. Now, find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. Best of all, right now, Politics Guys listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash politicsguy. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash politicsguy. And once more, because why not say it three times, to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash politicsguy. Unless you're Kim Jong-un, please go somewhere else because we want you to find bad people for your job. You know, I think at least on the left, this issue tends to be one that's primarily looked at as one of uh, environmental damage, potentially cat catastrophic damage. And I'm wondering how serious of a threat do you do you think that the human clause climate change really is? Well, I think it's, I think it's serious. Um, you know, I've said before in other places and different times that I think um, we could view this as an existential threat. Uh, so I, yeah, I, I'm, I view it pretty seriously. I've really dedicated, you know, my life since leaving the governor's office. I came to Colorado State University and dedicated my energy and the energy of my team to try and solve these energy challenges in part because uh, clean energy is one part of the solution for us going forward, I think. And so, yeah, I think it's a big threat. I think uh, there's a reason we should manage the risks associated with climate change. You know, in in preparing for for our discussion, I I didn't realize this. I discovered that Colorado is actually one of the top ten coal mining states in the country. It's just above uh, Ohio, where I live. And so I'm wondering, how then did uh, did did residents, did voters in Colorado react to this uh, interest in renewable energy? Was there any pushback or skepticism? Well, when you say we're top ten. We we are tenth, or we were at the time I was governor. We were the tenth largest producer. I don't know if that's um, if that's shifted at all. But yeah, there was always pushback. Um, it was interesting, and, and again, a bit of history here. The legislature would not pass a renewable portfolio standard that required the investor-owned utility to produce a certain amount of its energy from renewable energy. And that this happened in the late 90s, the early part of the new millennium. 
And then we took it to the voters. In 2004, Colorado voters said, we want a 10% renewable portfolio standard for the investor-owned utilities by 2015. And then the next two years are the years that I was actually campaigning, and it was apparent that the utility was going to get there um, and get there pretty easily. And so, you know, we raised it to 10, per, or we raised it from 10% to 20%. And instead of the uh, utility opposing it, the utility actually agreed to it. We raised it again from 20% to 30%. So it's still got to be by 2020. We're still going to do the kinds of things that we think are necessary to protect ratepayers. And again, the utility supported it. And then we took down a gigawatt of coal and replaced it with a gigawatt of natural gas, and the utility supported that. So I think there was pushback, certainly, by some folks in the coal industry particularly, not so much people in the natural gas industry, which is a bigger industry employment-wise in Colorado. We're one of the top producing gas states and oil and gas states in the country as well, and I think we're on the top six or seven in that case. And and so... Um, you know, there was a little bit of pushback from the coal industry. There was some worry on the part of labor about whether the workforce was going to be unionized that came in to build the turbines and, and install the solar. And um, over time, we worked those kinds of things out. But the fossil fuel industry, I think, wasn't as powerful as the utility industry, which was supporting our efforts. You know, I, I think that's really interesting because it goes against what I think a lot of people would expect the case to be. I'm sure a lot of listeners might be surprised that the utility industry was, in fact, supporting this. Why, why do you think that is? Well, I think they begin to see some advantages to a renewable portfolio and not just a, a renewable portfolio standard, but just a renewable portfolio, the price of wind has come down dramatically since I first served in office. Uh, there are deals out on the Eastern Plains that are less than three cents a kilowatt hour. Same thing happening in Texas. And then your energy resource is free going forward. It's the wind. And they were finding ways to produce you know, up to 60% of all the power. They, they provide energy to two-thirds of the folks in Colorado. And up to there are some days where 60% of the power will be wind energy, and um, I think they're very fond of that. The CEO of XL Energy has actually said that wind is one of the best bets on energy going forward. We see the same thing happening with these precipitous declines in the price of utility-scale solar. And uh, with that coming down, with the price of wind coming down, you wind up having these resources that where the fuel's free and you've got a, you know, a 20-year capital uh, a 20-year project on your hands where you get to manage capital and don't have to pay for the new fuel. So um, I think that's part of it. I think natural gas is certainly also a part of it. They found the ease to integrate natural gas um, in with wind to give you 24-hour generation if you don't have battery storage, you know, for both wind and solar. Natural gas uh, provides that. And I think all those things taken together, Excel's initial experience you know, 2005, 2006 was a positive one, and it's continued to be that way. So much so that we went from 275 megawatts of wind when I was elected in 2007 is when I started serving. We had, two, we had 275 megawatts of wind. We now have 3,600. So, you know, that's 12 times the amount in a 10-year period. And, and it was a really big build-out uh, that in part helped build out 
this economy to what we would call the economy of scale and certainly help the price come down. But we're seeing the same thing in utility scale solar that we saw in wind in terms of the price decline. Our second sponsor today is Blue Apron, the number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery service in the United States. Their mission is to make incredible home cooking accessible to everyone. I've told you before, it even works for me, which means it's going to work for you too. And they do it all with these super fresh, high quality ingredients, partnering with local farms, fisheries, and ranchers across the country and sourcing ingredients to support a sustainable food system, which is super important for me. Now, the thing I really love is that you get everything you need. I mean, all the seasonings and these little knickknack packages, they call them, it's delivered right to your door. Full color, clear, very clear preparations, instructions, even I don't screw it up. And so really awesome upcoming meals too. Listen to this. Black pepper beef with bok choy and garlic rice, uh, barramundi and garlic mashed potatoes with corn and tartar sauce, and uh, yakaniku glazed eggplant with shishito peppers and ginger lime cashews. Now, how cool would it be if you said, oh, I just threw together some yakaniku glazed eggplant with shishito peppers and ginger lime cashews. And then, of course, you throw in, of course, you know, the term yakaniku is largely associated with Korean cuisine during the early Showa period, which, of course, corresponds to the reign of the Emperor Hirohito from 1926 to 1989. That would sound very cool. And you know, Blue Apron is really a great value. All of this awesome stuff, less than $10 per person per meal, and it's delivered right to your door. So check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash TPG. That's blueapron.com slash TPG. You'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. Again, blueapron.com slash TPG. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Were there any proposals or programs that you had hoped to uh, enact during your time that just couldn't get done? Anything kind of on your wish list that you weren't able to accomplish in regards to renewable energy? Uh, no, I think I signed 57 different bills. And, you know, we certainly were very proud of what we did. I think since then, we've seen other states move past Colorado. We were, we probably had the second best renewable goal in America at the time. It was a, you know, it was a requirement that they produce 30% by 2020, and I think California had 35% by 2025. Uh, so arguably, a little bit tougher standard now. You see a lot of states moving beyond that. California, Oregon, Hawaii, New York, Vermont, New Hampshire. Um, states that are looking at these goals that are 40%, 50%, even 100% goals um, like they have in Hawaii by 2045. So, you know, when you think about what, where we got to, we went from zero to 10, 10 to 20, 20 to 30. That was a really good thing. Um, if I had remained in office another four years, then uh, we may have gotten even past that because I think the folks who are power producers in Colorado understand we probably have the ability to get past that 30% standard. And in fact, XL will go past that 30% standard without without being required to do so just because of the benefits they see from wind and solar. Right. Now, in your time as governor, I'm wondering if you think there are any uh, lessons you learned about trying to promote a new energy economy that might be useful to other governors? Or or is it just the case that states are just too different for there to be much carryover in terms of things that you learned that might may or may not be useful to other governors? Oh, no, no. I, I think there's there are great lessons learned. 
Um, and one of the things is don't assume your utility is going to be opposed to the effort. Um, the utilities across the country are beginning to understand why, you know, you would embrace uh, renewable energy in a bigger way. I don't think, you know, there's any utility saying it should be the only thing we have. I think diversity is a good thing. And certainly, um, if you have a diverse mix that still has affordable and reliable energy, but it's also clean, utilities are going to be in favor of that. And so, in my mind, it's important that if you're in a policy-making role, whether you're a governor or a state legislator or, you know, anybody else that is involved in this, you know, incorporate the utility in your planning so that it's not a surprise and there's much that you can learn from other states. The other thing, you know, there's, there's there are some characters still that are out there and that oppose this. And um, we maintain two websites. One is called aeltracker.org. So it stands for Advanced Energy Legislative, Legislative Tracker. And um, you can look and learn a lot of lessons by what kinds of bills people are introducing. We track every piece of legislation introduced at the state level until it either becomes law or it fails. And you can kind of follow that legislation and see, okay, what's the language like? Who opposes this? Who supports it? And some of that stuff you can learn from. The other thing we did was put together a, um, a website that's really a gap analysis for states that looks at 38 clean energy policies. It's called the SPOT or uh, cleanenergy.org. SPOT stands for State Policy Opportunity Tracker. So spotforcleanenergy.org, and you can go there and you can see these 30 different energy policies. And we analyze how each state of the 50 states has done with respect to each policy. That kind of thing is very helpful and meaningful, and you can learn, again, a lot from other states on how to move the needle and resolve some of the gaps. Oh, excellent. I, I definitely will make sure to include both of those uh, web addresses in the show notes here. I'm kind of eager to take a look at them myself. Uh, you know, there's one criticism that some people level at the left saying that, you know, they're all for non-polluting energy sources, but they fight against the single best, most consistently available source, which is nuclear power. And I'm wondering what you think about that and, and, and what, I guess, if any role you see for nuclear power in America's future. Well, I was fortunate to serve on a panel for the National Academy of Sciences. And, uh, you know, it was a really diverse mix of people on the panel, but we had some people who were experts with respect to nuclear energy. And the things I would say about nuclear is, uh, although it is carbon-free and it is, you know, a 24-hour power, uh, there's still a variety of problems. One is compared to either natural gas or wind, in most parts of the country, nuclear is still uh, far too expensive. And you look at the states that have decided to keep their nuclear power in play, the state of Illinois, the state of New York, both of them had to do that with an agreement that they would find ways to finance what essentially is a subsidy to keep them operating. The second thing is we still store all of the nuclear waste on site. There's no you know, storage facility, and whether you think Yucca Mountain's a good thing or a bad thing, um, we've, we've not really resolved that issue. And, and not only storing it, uh, should we decide ultimately upon a place to store it, we're not really, I think, resolved that we can move it and move it safely without there being great opposition, great public opposition to that. Uh, the other thing is permitting nuclear is pretty difficult in the United States. And this may be different in other places around the country, but because it takes so long, you know, when they put in place the clean power plan, in a 2030 deadline, and, and virtually if you began today to permit a nuclear power plant, 
it's unlikely you would be done doing that in 2030 when we had all these goals and targets for how we get to fewer emissions. And so there's, you know, there's a cost problem. There's a permitting problem with nuclear. There certainly is still, I think, a social license to operate problem with respect to um, storing nuclear waste and transporting nuclear waste. I do think that, you know, um, there are a variety of different technologies that are being tested and that nuclear is also still going to be part of our future. question will be whether it's small modular reactors or some different technology than what we currently have, but I, I think it's going to remain in play. Yeah. I, that, that piece about the permitting time, just, I knew it was long, but wow, I had no idea. That's, that's something else. Um, you know, my, my co-host on the show, uh, Jay, uh, he accepts the reality of human caused climate change, but like a number of conservatives, I think his argument is that the proper role for government here in this is to basically step back, allow freer markets to do their magic and enhance growth, enhance innovation. And his belief is that, you know, if we do that, at some point in the future, the private sector is going to develop methods of uh, mitigating the threat posed by climate change. Uh, do you think that's a, a viable strategy in your view? Well, um, no, for two reasons. And um, let's remember, first of all, that electricity generation is only part of the problem where emissions are concerned. And so let's just deal with electricity generation. Um, last year, trans transportation, excuse me, transportation eclipsed electricity generation in terms of emissions in the United States of America. So we have to pay attention to the transportation system for sure as well. But let's just talk about energy generation. It's never been a free market. It's never been a free market. It was first regulated of all places in Texas in 1905 or you know 1907. I, I'm not remembering the year, but, but the reason is because it functions very much um, as something that could become monopolistic. Um, absent regulation. And so in order to protect consumers, there's always this idea that you needed to regulate energy, uh, energy production. And even if you uh, are in a state that's deregulated, it's not unregulated. And, and that's just because of the nature of the beast. When you have you know, a major utility that's providing its services to many customers, if you don't have some controls in place through regulation or legislation, to ensure that their power is, you know, stays on, that it's uh, not just reliable, but like I said before, affordable. So, so we're not going to turn it over to the free market because we never have. The second part of that is, even if you decided that was the right thing to do, the one thing markets don't decide well is timing. So you said in your question, at some point in the future, you know, we would get the have the market would finally do the thing necessary to put the right technologies in place, the right price points in place to bring down emissions and to really control um, the, the change, the climate change that's a function of emissions. But we don't know when that is, right? If that's 2100, that's way too late for the globe. If it's, you know, even if it's 2075, it could be too late. We're seeing a lot of different kinds of things that I think are a product. And I think climate scientists believe largely that they are a product of climate change and some of this stuff is just irreversible and they have also what are called negative feedback loops where this thing happens you know the permafrost melts and that releases methane and methane is a, a serious greenhouse gas and so by the permafrost melting from warming we now have a cycle that is actually a natural cycle that really is going to have a serious impact 
um, added carbon in the air, added greenhouse gases, and could have a serious impact as well on climate change. So those are all the reasons I think leaving it to the free markets just a bad idea um, for us as the United States of America. Yeah, well, I, I uh, definitely agree with you a lot more than my my co-host on that one. Uh, you know, we haven't really talked about what to a lot of people is the big issue, the jobs issue, that argument that government regulation in the energy sector is going to raise prices and lead to the loss of jobs. And of course, this is an issue that really seems to strike a chord with especially those Americans who are living in states that have a, a big fossil fuels industry. And I'm wondering, do you think there's, at least in the short term, an inevitable trade-off between jobs and the environment that maybe some advocates for clean energy are, are understating or ignoring altogether? Well, I, I think it is important to pay attention to the jobs issue, but there's a couple of things about this. Um, First of all, I don't treat all fossil fuels the same. Uh, I, I wrote the book Powering Forward, and I have a chapter in there called The Future of Fossil Fuels. And in large part, that's a lot about coal, some about oil. But then I wrote a separate, cha separate chapter called The Future of Natural Gas. And I do think that natural gas is going to be around for a while, that it's cleaner burning, that it can provide 24-hour power. It can provide, you know, can, it can uh, provide what's called baseload power to support renewables. Uh, there's just a lot of reasons that, that gas is with us. But I think the coal industry is in a pretty serious decline. In our neighboring state to the north, Wyoming uh, is the number one coal producer. And last year, the three largest coal companies, Peabody, Alpha, and Arch, were all in bankruptcy at one point in time in 2016. They've all emerged from bankruptcy and they've all you know, figured out under chapter 11 plans how to go forward. But I think even those CEOs, if asked to honestly assess the future of the coal company, they'd say it's uh, likely to continue to experience a demise. And so much of that has to do with the affordability of natural gas and the long supply chain. We've done an analysis here in the West that looks to planned retirement and, and you know, coal fire generation that's just going to go away even if the retirement isn't announced yet because of the expense of installing scrubbers. And it really looks like 85 to 90% of all the coal will be gone in the West by 2037, 2038. So that's two decades from now. That's a massive transformation. And so when you talk about jobs, instead of promising people in the coal industry that we're going to you know, find more jobs, we're going to bring back the coal industry, we should be telling the truth to those people about what's happening with this industry, why it's happening. It doesn't have to do with regulation. It has largely to do with natural gas and, and renewables, the price point coming out for renewables. Tell the truth about that and then manage that transition so that you're in a coal community, you listen to the kinds of things they want to do if they understand what's happening with them. And and that's what I call the just transition. It's helping people in those communities. I don't think you, we're gonna retrain them to be coders or even retrain them to necessarily install solar or work on wind turbines, but there's a variety of things and a variety of ways to bring economic vitality back to a community uh, who's lost it. And instead of you know lying to them about it, we should be telling them the truth about what they are going to experience unless they are part of the transition. Right. 
You know, uh, it's hard to believe we've gotten to this point without uh, talking about President Trump. I'll mention him briefly. Uh, in, in the wake of his decision to pull out of the Paris Climate Agreement, a number of uh, governors, mayors, and business uh, leaders formed a group called We Are Still In, and they vowed to support the United States' commitment to the Paris Agreement. And I'm wondering, uh, as a governor, you probably have a unique perspective on this. How much of a difference do you think state governments and local governments can make on their own. I mean, is it realistic to think that we can meet our Paris commitment without the support of the federal government, do you think? So I uh, I actually went to Paris, spoke in Paris. I was badged by the State Department, and I spoke about the role of subnationals, so state and local governments, in helping nations meet their targets. And I would, I'm going to amend your question slightly. I appreciate the question, but it's not just states and locals. They can they can do a great deal in helping the country meet its um, its you know emissions reduction target, its climate targets. But uh, now we have an added factor, so it's state governments, local governments, and uh, corporate purchasing and corporate procurement, because there's a lot of really significant corporations that are deciding to have their own goals in terms of how they produce and consume energy and even how they run their transportation systems, and that is going to as well have a really significant impact. So you've got state government, local government, corporate procurement, and taken together, listen, it's not ideal. It'd be ideal if the federal government were on board still, but it is not on board, and um, and it, you know, it's trying to pull out of the Paris Agreement. And so states are going to have to pick up the slack, but we're seeing states and cities and uh, and major corporations do just that. Right. Now, uh, I'm just wondering, let's say you were president. Uh, I'll start by assuming you wouldn't nominate a Scott Pruitt to run the EPA. But 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 that aside, uh, what what would be on the top of your list to do or to propose that Congress do regarding renewable energy policy? Well, um, Congress just hasn't done much yeah. <laughs> regarding renewable energy policy. They've they've expanded the tax credits. You know, they've taken them away and expanded them, taken away and expanded them. Um, and so you have the production tax credit that helps support wind energy. It's sunsetting in 2020. And the investment tax credit that supports solar is sunsetting in, in 2022. And I'm, I'm going to surprise a lot of people by saying I think they should sunset. I think we should think about uh, those tax credits sunsetting. And in its place, we need to put a price on carbon. You want to support renewable energy in America or even just clean energy. Um, it also would operate probably as a support for nuclear. Um, but 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 having a price on carbon that truly says we're no longer going to let you know CO2 escape into the atmosphere and not capture that externality, it's called. When something escapes in, if something is an impact of you know an activity that you have and you don't account for the cost of that activity then it's an externality you're not capturing. And, and by saying, you know what, um, carbon has a cost to uh, it. It has public health costs to it, and we need to capture that. So we need to put a price on carbon. That's actually, ironically, that's a market functioning better. I mean, it eschews the market in a big way if you don't capture all the externalities. And so this would be really a way of, of making it function more like a market, but there's a lot of resistance. Yeah, that well, would be it. 
putting a price on carbon. Well, you know, it's interesting you mentioned that because I'm, I, I'm sure you remember this, and I remember it as well, that this actually was a, a Republican proposal in a, in a different era, certainly not something that has a lot of buy-in from, from conservatives at this point, but uh, that with that market orientation and so forth. So, uh, yeah. Uh, one- oh, yeah and, even, and even under a, a Republican president, we put a, a market in place for sulfuric uh, sulfur dioxide. So, you know, so too, I mean, we had a big problem with, uh, with that. And we managed that problem by creating a trading market that put a price on it. Right. So it's not like this is some crazy left wing sort of thing by, by any means. Um, it's the functioning of a market, like we said. Yeah, I've just one. I know we're running a little short. I just have one final question for you. Uh, aside from picking up a copy of Powering Forward, uh, what resources would you recommend to listeners, whether we're talking about it could be books, authors, journalists, Internet resources, whatever, uh, to, to listeners who really want to get a better understanding of energy policy in this country? Well, um, boy, that's, a, that's a tough question. I, I would. Um, it sounds like we're still patting ourselves on the back, but I would check out those two websites just to understand what's happening sort of at the state level. Um, you know, there are other really pretty good authors who think about this and write about it. Um, you can look at a variety of things online. I'm a good friend with Sue Tierney of the Analysis Group, and they do some really good work. Um, interestingly, she's the brother of, she's the sister of James Fallows, who you've had on your program. And James Fallows, I, I saw when you, you sent me the list of people that had been on the program before. He's a writer for The Atlantic, and he's a pretty smart guy. And, uh, you know, picking up The Atlantic magazine or picking up uh, other kinds of um, publications that may have some little bit about energy. Just read it in newspapers uh, in terms of, you know, just books you can read. Um, I, I don't know that there's any one thing I would recommend, but paying attention to it and, and keeping ahead of it helps you understand this link between energy policy transportation policy and climate change. Yeah, absolutely. That's some great advice. And with that, we will close. Governor Ritter, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you, Michael. It was my pleasure. Thanks a lot. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. We hope you liked what you heard and that you'll check out today's sponsors. ZipRecruiter, where Politics Guy's listeners can post jobs for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash PoliticsGuy. And Blue Apron, check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to BlueApron.com slash TPG. We also hope you'll consider joining our Politics Guys Insiders program, where supporting the show financially comes with exclusive extras like special updates, more commentary, additional episodes, and lots more. You can check it out and sign up at our Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash politicsguys, or by clicking on the Patreon link at politicsguys.com. And if you want to support the show without spending a single thing, you can share this episode with your friends and followers and pass along our new show posts on tweets on on Facebook and Twitter. All of that helps a lot. I'm a little tongue-tied. I don't know why. Maybe I need more coffee. Anyway, leaving reviews and ratings on iTunes is also a big help for the show. And hey, if you've got a question, comment, correction, or just a random thought you want to share with us, you can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com and our Facebook page where you can message us and where we post stuff throughout the week, facebook.com slash politicsguys page. We're also on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of The Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorff, and Bruce Johnson. The show was produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Sunday. We hope you'll join us.